Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a great day. I am back, back in business after um, a couple of weeks in Hawaii. So I didn't record for the last few weeks. I didn't plan to not record. I just like things got crazy. I am human like all of you. And uh, I just couldn't get this awesome episode up before I left. But that's cool because it gave me more time to think about Sarah Canny, who you're going to hear from in a few minutes here while I was on the big island of Hawaii and then Maui. So we went to Hawaii as a family, me, Tim, and Wilder to celebrate Tim's career as a triathlete. Um, This year, he was invited to be inducted into the Ironman Hall of Fame. Huge honor. Um, We didn't ever expect him to get inducted, but we wondered if maybe someday he would. And it was really cool when he got a call. He got a phone call from Mike Riley, who is the voice of Ironman. You are an Iron Man. He's super awesome. Someday I need to get him on the show. But anyway, um, he got a call from Mike, and Mike was like, hey, this is it. This is the year you're being inducted. So it was really awesome. We went over there, and Wilder is old enough to start to understand um, the cool things that we both did in our careers, and it was really fun to watch her walk up and down Ali'i Drive, and like every time she did, she would stop and hug this larger-than-life-size poster of Tim. They put all the previous winners from every year in these huge banners all along Ali'i Drive, and you know she got to walk in the parade with her dad um, when he was honored and gave a speech at the palace in Kona he mentioned her and I just know she felt so special and it was really fun as a family to go out there and you know just live it a little differently than we did let's say a lot differently than we did when we were athletes first of all there were no nerves like zero why would there be I mean maybe Tim had a little bit of nerves before he spoke but I don't even think he did because at the end of the day he was like you know what this is closure this is This is a celebration and it basically means like you did it. I'm done. I'm truly done. I've been done, but now I can like put a stamp on it and say like, wow, I made my mark. And we just had fun and we did cool things on the island that, you know, we had explored in bits and pieces over the 20 plus years we'd been spending over there. And we brought Wilder along for the ride. And so the day after the race, um, which, by the way, was amazing. Um, I really don't follow triathlon very closely anymore. Just uh, just a little bit here and there. And we watched these athletes. And, oh, my gosh, it's so competitive and, and so incredible on all levels, not just as the pros, but the age groupers. My gosh. Um, it's just a whole different game. And... And then there's this whole new level of legacy athletes, which is so cool. These are 
triathletes who've done a certain number of Ironmans. I think it's like 14 or something of other Ironmans, not Hawaii, and they'll never get into Kona. They're just not going to make it. And so they apply and they may get chosen to be a legacy athlete. So they get to go over and and it rounds out the field from like the super competitive to the people who it's like a bucket list dream thing to do, the Hawaii Ironman. Um, when we were there, the first day we were there, I looked up, we were on the pool deck, which is actually one of Wilder's main memories of the trip is the pool at both our hotels, which most parents listening will laugh at. Um, and we saw this guy who I'd known from many years ago when I was racing, he was a kid. His name's Rudy Tolson Garcia or Garcia Tolson. I can look that up, Rudy. Um, and he, he was one of the first, uh, double amputee athletes to get involved in the sport of triathlon and really help challenge athletes foundation, make its mark with Bob Babbitt. And he was there helping a friend, a guy named Roderick Sewell who is an African-American double amputee above the knee who was going to attempt the Ironman and had just done a half Ironman a few weeks before. That's the longest he'd ever gone. And we just met them the first day. And I said, hey, Rudy, I, I befriended you on social media. <laughs> He's like, I know you guys. I, I followed you when I was a kid. Um, and so we got to know Roderick, the guy who is racing and Wilder really connected with him. And in fact, he babysat her for five minutes while I ran up to the room. It was very cute. But anyway, um, he added another level and another dimension for us that day because it was all about like breaking barriers and Wilder got so into it. And there was a point during the race when, we had shed most of our clothing. Like she was down to her bikini and her running shoes. And I had on like a bikini top and a skirt. You know, I mean, it was like, boom, we're down. We're at the final <laughs> the run is on. The final finishers are on the course. And we were sprinting down the road to catch Roderick from one spot to the next. And I just laughing to myself. I'm like, this is how I used to do it when I would support Tim. And now I'm passing this on to Wilder. It was so fun to see. So it was a special, special week. And uh, as a family, I had decided, you know, we should really take advantage of this time and go explore another island because we really didn't get to do it that much when we were racing. We would go to Kona for two weeks and then we would come home. So we decided we'd go over to Maui. And we chose our hotel based on the pool, which ended up being very smart because at the end of the day, Wilder did so many cool things. I mean, I'm talking, you know, 10 epic new cool things. But the thing she said was her absolute favorite. Her number one was going down the slide at the pool. <laughs> number two was surfing. I'm not sure where watching dad get inducted into the Hall of Fame fell. Um, but it was it was a really cool trip. And um, I came. we came home from it. And Tim and I were you know, tired, exhausted, because you're always on a red eye on the way home. But we also, it was time for us to come home. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I wish I could just move here and live here forever. And part of it was that we never quite got in our groove. So I texted my best friend, Mindy, and I was, you know, she's like, how was it? And I said, well, it was really cool, except like, I really didn't get in any workouts or anything that like made me feel good. 
it was really all about like giving my child an experience and then just trying to squeeze in some sanity around it for myself. And she just started laughing so hard. And the point is like, what did I expect? Like, this is what it's like to go on vacation with a kid. And yes, we need to work on how to get all our needs met. But when you're not planted somewhere in a schedule, you just need to kind of expect that. Um, And so I come home and I'm very tan. (laughs) My child is very tan and Tim is very tan. And we're all so grateful, you know, for the first day back to just be able to dig into life again as we know it. But now we know that there are other other opportunities out there to go out and explore and ways to do this as a family where we can all celebrate the beauty of what's around us. So if you want to check on my trip, go to my Instagram or Facebook. You can check out Tim DeBoom at Instagram um, and you will see some truly incredible stuff. But what you will not see is how gross we felt when we weren't getting in our own workouts. (laughs) Um, which is a number one, very important for all of us. So there you have it, guys. That's why I took quite a break here. And I just wanted to give you a little insight and fun into, into this cool trip that we just took, this adventure. And I look forward to having many more and figuring out the ways that, that we, can, we can all do it and feel very fulfilled. So here we go. Um, it's time to move into what you're really here to listen to today which is this incredible conversation with a woman named Sarah Canny. Um, You may know her as the Run Far Girl. That's, uh, I think, the name of her blog. Actually, Sarah connected with me through Instagram. She, like, reposted one of my podcasts. I looked her up. I was like, she looks pretty cool. She's got some, like interesting stuff going on in life. And we ended up having a conversation. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to have you on my podcast because she has so many dimensions. Um, First of all, she has three kids and homeschools them. She has a fantastic marriage to a great guy who's been there for her in multiple phases and stages of her life, even the early stages where she probably would look back and say it wasn't the prettiest time of her life. Um, but today I would describe her as a creator and a defeater. She, to me, she is a creator of all things, love, light, and empowerment. She focuses on building confidence and strength. What she's a defeater of is the opposite, the nasty, difficult, ugly things that try to hold us back. And in her world, That's really focused around eating disorders and her nine-year-long battle with bulimia. Uh, Today's conversation definitely gets emotional. Um, I think we were both surprised at a certain point when, you know, I asked Sarah a question that I actually knew the answer to, but I wanted to hear how she would explain it. And I, for a second, I thought we had lost the connection. I was like, oh my gosh, I dropped her. Where, Where is she? But she had, it had triggered something inside of her and she was having a a bit of a breakdown. And we, you know, we let her go through that and recover and, and come through it on the, on the episode and through the conversation. So, you know, just keep in mind that the topics we talk about, while sometimes we're lighthearted and we have fun, there's, there's some really deeply difficult 
things that, you know, Sarah lets you in on in this episode. She's an incredible person. She has learned a lot. She's gone through a lot. She's developed a lot of tools to help herself. And really what she wants to do now, her mission in life is to help other women gain confidence and find strength. So today you are going to have a huge treat. You will come out of this with more confidence and strength. And uh, I think you'll be a better person just by listening to the beautiful and awesome Sarah Candy. Oh my gosh, this is way too funny. So um, (laughs) Sarah, you're like, you're sitting in your closet, which I can only Mm -hmm. guess you're doing because you homeschool your kids and we're doing an interview in the middle of the school day? Um, partially. Yeah. So the, the noise level from the outside is dampened in here. Yeah. (laughs) Although my husband is taking the kids, they have a science class down at our local children's museum. So he has the kids and he's taking them. So I'm actually home by myself. So I literally could be anywhere in the house, but I'm choosing to be in the closet. That is so, okay. Is this a symbolic gesture for what we're talking about today? Oh my gosh. I mean, this is not an LGBTQ conversation, not that kind of closet, but man, we've all got closets we've created over the years that we find ourselves stuck in and we have to get out of. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Maybe, maybe it is a metaphor for the the conversation that's going to follow. We'll see. (laughs) We'll find out. Well, let's start, you know what I thought, let's just start talking about your kids. Cause I was thinking about how mine is safely at school. And then I thought, well, wait, Sarah has three kids and we're doing this interview in the middle of the day. So you just explained like they're heading out with the hub. So wait, does Mm -hmm. he have a super flexible life? You know, how does he get to go do this? Yeah. So he's self-employed. He um, is a plumbing contractor. um, And he's owned his own business for the last 10 years. Although we're kind of in this major life shift where he um like plumbing is definitely not his first love it's not like he as a teenager was like this is what i want to do with my life so he actually has a master's degree in marriage and family therapy and so he's phasing out of the plumbing um business um and sort of trying to open himself up to what's next so he's actually going to take the entire month of october off and we're just gonna kind of see what happens (laughs) Okay, this is like really a crazy way to start because Mark himself, this is a really interesting life transition. Wait, so he learned a trade though. I mean, the trades are Mm -hmm. like, you learn a trade, you're getting paid as much as a physician these days. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, he built a really successful business over the last 10 years. I mean, it was a grind and, you know, pretty literally crappy jobs to start out. Um, but he <laughs> I could have used another word, but we figured we'd keep this PG. Um, <laughs> I mean, but you know, so he worked really hard for 10 years and, um, built up to a couple employees and, you know, just kind of, he turned 40 this year. So I think this is part of it is like, just kind of thinking like, man, I don't have all that much more time to like figure out exactly what I want to do, what's going to make me happy. And so I think he's kind of in that, in that transition phase right now. And we are pretty um, comfortable with risk. So we're just diving into um, the unknown right now. Well, it's, 
it's kind of crazy. Like marriage and family therapy, that's like a, um, that's a deep dive to get your, uh, your master's degree. in, and I can imagine a lot of women go into that field and maybe less yeah. men. I could be wrong, but, yeah. um, how does like, does, so does he help keep things in perspective when the crap is hitting the fan literally? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, usually I'm texting him or calling him throughout the day, asking him what, what I should do. I'm asking him for parenting advice because he just, he just has, he's way more calm than I am. And I'm kind of high strung type A and he's just sees the big picture and is able to kind of handle things, um, you know, just a really sort of, I don't know, like you should, like the ideal parent would not that he's the ideal parent, but like, I don't know, like I just, (laughs) he's got this like patience level that I don't have. I don't know. So he's, yeah, it's good. So you guys met though, when you were in college, right? Yeah. Yeah. I met him on a hike when I was 19 and he, um, was 22. Yeah. So he's a few years older than I am, but yeah, we were just, um, out with this sort of mutual group of friends, but we didn't know each other. Um, and went on this big hike here in New Hampshire, um, and we ended up sort of at the same sort of pace hiking and talked for a really long time and kind of hit it off and um yeah and then just started hanging out more together doing more hikes together and yeah we eventually made it official <laughs> well it's um it, you know it's really cool i love hearing origin stories of how couples meet because you met through physical activity and you were already partway into a a difficult journey in your life. If, um, yeah. if my timeline mm-hmm. I've read about Sarah Candy yeah. serves me right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that had to do with, you know, eating disorders and coming out of the first wave of realization yeah. that this had taken over your life. And you met him in the beginning yeah, of right in the beginning. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. So that particular, hike we went hiking in August and I had been on a wait list for um, an inpatient um, treatment facility for eating disorders and I hadn't yet sort of gotten off the wait list so um, and sort of I you know it's amazing that I even made it up the mountain considering how how little I weighed and how restrictive my um, diet was, I mean, I honestly probably shouldn't have been out there hiking that day. Um, and, um, it was in the car on the way, sort of driving back to where everyone had, we had all carpooled up to the mountain. Um, and so we were driving back, like it was like a two hour drive from the mountain back to where we had all sort of left our cars. Um, and somehow I'm not really sure how, but he, managed to get somebody else to drive his car so he could ride in the front seat of my car that I was driving. So he ended up sitting um, in the front seat of my car sort of after the hike on the way back. And um, everybody in the back seat like fell asleep. It was late at night um, and we're driving back and he and I are talking, chatting back and forth. And for whatever reason, um, I opened up to him about struggling with an eating disorder Um, and at the time I had been, um, dating somebody else who, um, you know, was kind of like concerned, but like, we never talked about it. 
Um, and so it was just like this, my eating disorder was sort of this elephant in the room kind of thing. And it was like that anytime I was open or honest with anyone, that's sort of how it felt was like, oh, I'm so sorry, was the response. And then like, not no conversation around it. So I was in the car with Mark and he, I somehow I brought it, somehow it came up in conversation and I opened up about it. Um, and he said, um, so what exactly are you doing to get better? You know, he really like challenged, like pinpointed and challenged me. And at first I was extremely pissed off <laughs> that this guy that I didn't even really know was sort of like poking me a little bit, like about what I was doing about this thing that was a huge struggle. But then I got home and I realized like, man, that's the kind of guy I want in my life is like somebody who's going to sort of to say, hey, what are you doing to to be a better person? Um, and so I actually knew like that night after we went hiking that that was the kind of guy I want to marry. I would want to marry. So, so how did you disentangle this other relationship and dive right? <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was actually pretty um, easy because it was sort of this long distance because my freshman year had been at Syracuse University and because of the eating disorder, I had transferred to a school closer to home, to the University of New Hampshire. And so this boyfriend was still sort of at Syracuse and like we were trying to make it work long distance and maybe seeing each other every so often. And it really wasn't like progressing at all. In fact, it was like kind of dwindling. So it was kind of an easy end to that relationship. <laughs> Wow. Oh my gosh. I love that. Let's, uh, let's dive back a little further. Actually, yeah. we'll come back to, um, where we just left off at some point here, but so you grew up in New Hampshire mm -hmm. and yep. you were yep. just like an active girl doing ball sports and outdoor stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, my family was pretty active. I mean, we did a lot of hiking when I was a kid, a lot of cross-country skiing, um, sort of anything that was outdoors that was free. Um, so we didn't do any downhill skiing or um, things that were um, cost a lot of money. I um, have three other siblings, and um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, and, you know, so it wasn't – I mean, we, we were well provided for, but it's not like there was a lot of extra cash to go around. So, um, so we were – anything we did, it was like budget, you know, budget activities. Um, and then yeah, played basketball, loved basketball in middle school and high school. Um, and honestly, I really wanted to play, um, in college and professionally. That was like my, my 13, 14 year old dream. Um, so, but yeah, always kind of athletic outside, um, basketball. Yeah. Anything that was like, competitive. Um, yeah, I was drawn to that. Well, and you mentioned, um, at least in an earlier conversation with me that you are in a type A personality. Would you still say yeah. that applies? Okay. So where did that come from? Well, I think, um, I think a lot of that has its origin in, um, just sort of my family dynamic. Um, 
um, education was highly valued on sort of my dad's side of the family. Um, a lot of Ivy League educated um, family members. Um, and um, yeah, it was just pr- sort of academic performance was very important. Um, and then um, I think like just this idea of just like getting it right. Like I think my, my biggest fear as sort of a kid and growing up was like, you know, don't mess it up. Like don't, don't do anything wrong. Like behave well, get good grades, you know, do well in everything. And then everybody will be happy. There won't be any conflict. There won't be any turmoil. And so I think there was a lot of people pleasing that came out of that and just like getting it right and doing it right um, for everybody else kind of thing. You know, I, I totally get, I get all this. Um, I get the whole people pleasing part of it too. I I suffer from that a bit myself through my entire life, including now. So Mm. what's wrong with that? Like what, how did, how did all of this contribute maybe more on the negative side to, Mm. you know, your future battles that we're yet to talk about? Yeah. I think, I think the the thing that kind of developed was the fear of what would happen if I messed up or if I, you know, if I didn't get it right, if I didn't, you know, get the good grades. And so I think that fear unexpressed, you know, I didn't talk to anybody about like, how I felt or what I was thinking or struggling with Um, very much like an introvert, but also kind of kept all of that, um, that pressure to myself. Um, And so I think when that goes sort of unarticulated, um, the fear grows in power, you know, and um, it can, become this um, dominant internal voice that then um, dictates the way that you think and what you believe about yourself. And so I really think that it was sort of this unarticulated fear that then just grew out of proportion in my own mind um, and kind of went unchecked, I guess you could say. Um, and I think there was a lot of anxiety wrapped up in that as well. Just like, just, it was a really anxious, um, anxious kid, um, always just anxious about disappointing or letting other people, you know, letting other people down or getting it wrong or, um, not being good enough. Um, yeah. And so I think when those things go unchecked, um, and unarticulated, they, they can grow to disordered proportions, which is, you know, what happened in. In my case, you know, this is super relevant too, because we're both raising kids and, mm-hmm. you know, the last thing we want is for them to suffer from some of the things that we suffered from, right? The pains yeah. that we had. But mm-hmm. then I sit here and I listen and I'm like, wow, I get it. Like you can't screw up. So you never screw up. So then you Mm -hmm. just become more fearful of screwing up instead of just screwing up sometimes. Yeah. And realizing like it's not that bad. Yet the last Mm -hmm. thing we want is for our kids to screw up because we know they're going to go through pain. So like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on how to, how are you tackling that with your own kids and their own kids? Yeah. Yeah. 
<clears throat> I, you know, I think like the biggest thing, uh, because I feel like just because of my history, I'm pretty keenly aware of like wanting my own children to feel free to articulate their, their fears and their anxiety and, and not dismissing it, giving, giving it space and, and also kind of bringing the whole family together around it, discussing it and kind of bringing it into the light. I think those things are really important. So, you know, just, uh, you know, as a family, we're, we're trying, we always try to keep an open conversation with our kids. Um, but I also think too, it's really important to um, give your kids the opportunity to take risks um, and and fail and let them feel the consequence of those risks and failures in sort of a more controlled environment, you know, where you're kind of observing the risk and the potential for failure, but not interfering so that it they don't feel the consequence. Um, and so it's kind of like the opposite, I guess you could say, of that helicopter parenting um, mentality is just kind of taking a, a big step back and just kind of letting them um, letting them feel those, those things on a smaller scale that way, as they get bigger and older, um, they've had practice with, with those feelings. Are you successful at doing that? You know, my husband is really good at stepping back and, and not interfering when there's a potential for like, the risk that the child is taking is not going to pan out how, you know, the child thought it would. And like, it's kind of hard not to like jump in, um, you know, to, um, you know, and that could go, that could be anything from like my daughter baking cookies and she did, you know, a quarter cup instead of a quarter teaspoon, you know, or something like that. It's like, do you jump in and like fix the situation or do you let it play out and let her figure out like, Oh, I kind of screwed up. I actually have to throw this batter away and start over. <laughs> or, you know, maybe it's on the playground and it's like you're letting your kids kind of figure out like, oh, where do I, where do they need to put their foot if they're climbing up that climbing wall instead of going over and saying, put your foot here, <laughs> here, I'll boost you up, you know, and so actually just really stepping back. So I think my husband does a really good job of it. And, and I think I'm learning more and more to, to step back and and just let it kind of play out. It's really interesting too, when we have a partner who's really good at one thing to sometimes we let them own that role and then mm -hmm. we feel okay not owning it. I, I don't know, I get, Tim and I kind of get into that place where yeah. that happens to us and then it actually isn't necessarily a good thing because we're not pushing True. or growing ourselves in the ways that we need to. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that can be hard. Smart. Kids play yeah, off they, of that. Oh, they are. Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. Yep. So, okay, you talked about like anxieties and fears growing up. At some point, did that turn into insecurities or, you know, uh, a negative hits about your, like your self-confidence or your body image? Like at what point did those insecurities or anxieties mm -hmm. start to possibly manifest your next battle and journey in life. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I can kind of look back and it was probably around age 10, I would say that, um, I just kind of started to notice, like, 
uh, I don't look like the other girls. I was definitely kind of overweight at that age. Um, and, um, this feeling of just not being enough, not measuring up. Um, you know, I was good academically. I was, you know, great at sports, you know, but I wasn't, this was another area that wasn't good enough, you know? And so, um, I can just, you know, and I was made fun of a little bit, um, as a kid, just for being overweight. Um, and, you know, I think those comments kind of, um, brought that aspect of my being into sort of, um, my consciousness and, um, and really kind of made me start to feel insecure, I guess, you know, and, and, um, feel it like I wasn't enough. And so it was right around that age that, or I guess sort of over the next few years, like 12, 13, I think it was around 13, I started just kind of like experimenting with like restricting different things. So like I became a vegetarian, declared I was a vegetarian to my family and started restricting meat. And then, um, yeah, just kind of slowly eliminated different things. And, you know, at the time, um, both my grandfather, right around that, like 10 to 12, uh, year old range, both my grandfathers had heart attacks. And this is like, 1990, 1992, um, which at the time, everything was like, get rid of, you know, if there was a heart attack in the family, it's get rid of all fat, get rid of all cholesterol, you know, and so our family was kind of going through this little morph in our family's diet as well, where, um, you know, my parents were trying to be more conscious of their father's, you know, this hereditary heart disease thing that could potentially be a problem. And so diet, and food kind of became more um, uh, prominent, I guess, a, dis- a discussion in the household. And so I think, like, yeah, so then it was like vegetarian, I'm not going to eat any fat. And like the restriction kind of progressed more and more. Um, and I kind of tied, like, um, yeah, this idea that if I was thinner, like, you know, some of the other girls who I saw and was friends with, that. I, people would like me more, be more popular, um, you know. So, so yeah, it was kind of like right around that age where, where things started to kind of escalate. Oh, and that's such dangerous mentality, the whole if this, oh, totally. then this. Yep. I mean, we know oh, yeah. in so many areas of our lives that that's never the case. You may achieve the if this, <laughs> And the then this mm-hmm. never is as fulfilling as you think it's going to be. But I can understand yeah. your path. I mean, and that's such a difficult time too. like middle school, junior high. You know, we're all finding who we are. Everyone's insecure anyway. I don't know about you. I had braces and headgear that I wore at oh, night. Me too. Yeah. Yep. I but had headgear. <laughs> it was horrible. Like ridiculous. Yeah. Does that still exist? I never see kids wearing headgear. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I had to wear mine like for 24. Like I I remember I had a week where I had to wear it 24 hours a day. And that was like (laughs) the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. (laughs) I think I had to wear mine like 18 hours a day or something. So it was like the minute I came away to put it on. It was so horrible. Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, all this looking back, we can laugh. But when you're in it, it's hard. And 
So all these insecurities are adding up. And I mean, this idea of restricting, we all understand what restricting is. I mean, we've all done it in different ways throughout our lives, but, and many, especially women have restricted food. So like, were you seeing results from restricting food? And, and when you were declared yourself a vegetarian, were your, was your family like, oh my, we live in New Hampshire. Like we hunt and kill <laughs> meat, you know, or something. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I think my parents were kind of like, oh, that's, are you sure? But then my mom had a friend who was vegetarian and, and her daughter and I were really close friends. And so I think she sort of thought, saw it as like a progression of like, oh, Sarah's really close friends. Mom is a vegetarian and, and her friend's a vegetarian. So it sort of seems like something Sarah would be interested in. So, but no, I don't think that there were any like alarm bells um, at that point. It was really sort of, so my freshman year of high school, um, I just had a really like awkward year. I mean, who doesn't when they're a freshman, it's a tough transition, but um, I just can remember walking into the cafeteria and just feeling paralyzed by like, I don't know who to sit with, you know, because there's like this ranking, like the seniors sit there and the juniors sit there and the freshmen sit there. And it's like, I didn't know anyone and like, I didn't feel like I had a place to sit. And so that's when I stopped eating lunch at school. I would just go to the library and study during lunch. And I'd sort of eat lunch when I got home. But over my freshman year and then like really sort of more drastically the summer between my freshman year and sophomore year, I lost, um, some quite a bit of weight. I don't know, like 15 to 20 pounds. Um, and when I went back to school, the fall of my sophomore year, everyone was like, wow, Sarah, you look so great. And, you know, it was like this, like all this positive reinforcement for what I had been doing, which is basically just eating carrots and rice cakes and, that free yogurt um so so yeah it was um that's kind of when it kind of became a thing and I got you know just so much positive feedback that I was like oh yeah this is working people like me now you know so oh my gosh it's so dangerous and so young so at what point did your thoughts start to become consumed by thinking about food calories Yeah. I mean, I think like my junior and senior year, for the most part, I would say like my diet was probably still pretty balanced. Like, I mean, it's hard to remember exactly what I was doing, but like weekends and times with family, I wasn't really restricting a ton. Um, I mean, I was still vegetarian and um, it was really like the school day and like during school that I just wasn't just wouldn't eat um and then I think really it was like after I graduated that um that summer um kind of before going off to college was um kind of when things became really ingrained and obsessive and um it was kind of my thinking was like I'm gonna reinvent myself like high school is awkward and I didn't like it. Um, and I didn't feel like I fit in, but in college I'm going to fit in and I'm going to, you know, um, people are going to like me was kind of like, and so it was really that summer that I just kind of 
sort of made the dieting thing like a full-time job and just really put a lot of my focus and my energy into tracking my calories and um, figuring out how much I was, you know, how many calories I was burning and that kind of thing. It's interesting because you equated people are going to like me with mm-hmm. I'm going to control this part of my life and then people mm-hmm. are going to like me. It's yeah. In, and so you went off to uh, Syracuse for freshman mm-hmm. year and weren't you studying like nutrition? I was. I was studying nutritional science. Um, and I think like, yeah, I mean, it's very common um, for um young women who are interested in the nutritional sciences to also um, have some disordered eating, if not an eating disorder. So um, I don't think I'm alone in that. But yeah, so uh, my, um, my intention, my major was uh, nutritional science. And my intention was to um, become a registered dietitian. So, so, so let's fast forward a little bit to What happened, like at what point was there a cry for help? When did everything spiral to the point where you realized I'm in trouble? Yeah, so it really was, um, I think like just the bus ride home from Syracuse to Boston where my parents were going to pick me up um, for Christmas break. So um so fall semester had finished and I'm on my way home for Christmas break and my, yeah, my parents were going to pick me up and I boarded the bus and I was wearing probably like a long sleeve and a sweater and then a down jacket, a big North face down jacket, and then a big Gore-Tex North face shell over the top of that. And, um, I couldn't stop shaking on the bus cause I was so cold. Like I just had no ability to regulate my body temperature. Um, and I was just freezing. Um, and you know, my hair was falling out, um, and I couldn't sleep at night. Um, cause I was just starving. <clears throat> and, um, I, um, you know, there were just some other physical symptoms that, um, that were just signs that I was just really unhealthy. And I think we had done a unit in my nutrition 101 class that had been about disordered eating and and maybe recently, like towards the end of that fall semester. And, you know, in the, that section in the textbook, there were like, you know, a list of the signs and symptoms of, you know, anorexia. And I could pretty much check every single, every single sign and symptom um, I could put a check next to. Um, And so like I just, I knew something was wrong and I was also just miserable. I mean, I was really depressed. Um, I, um, you know, and the weather in Syracuse doesn't help with that. Um, but yeah, I was just really depressed and just physically just miserable. Um, and so I got home and, um, it was Christmas Eve, um, we were getting ready to go to the Christmas Eve service at my parents' church. And uh, my mom came in to say, hey, we got to go. We're running late. And I just burst into tears and said, um, I think I have an eating disorder. And that's like all I could get out. But um, at that point, um, but that was kind of really like the cry for help. Um, because I just felt like I don't want to live this way. And I don't see like, but I'm not sure how to stop living this way. 
you know, and so, you know, I was kind of afraid that if I kept going and kept taking it to an extreme that I, that I would not have, you know, that I would die, I guess. So it's, um, it's really a blessing that you had such a relationship with your mom that you could say that to her because it's, it's like taking the deep breath and saying it out loud. It's so scary yeah. and obvious yeah. though. Obvious, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. She had to have known. Oh yeah. She, I mean, my parents had come for parents weekend in October and I think that they had noticed like that there had been a weight loss from when they dropped me off in August to October. Um, and so when they saw me in December, the weight loss was even more drastic um, and she had had a, a close friend of hers who was a physical therapist, um, and, um, kind of in like, um, yeah, the healthcare industry who had said to my mom, like, I think you should talk to Sarah. Look, it looks like she might have an eating disorder. Um, and so, um, yeah, so my mom, my, my, my parents definitely had an inclination that something was going on. So you, you know, you're in this little journey all by yourself and yeah. then suddenly one day you open up and now someone else is with you. I mean, was it like a big relief? How did you, it was. how'd you move it yeah. forward from there? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's true. Like I was, I did feel all alone. Um, and I think honestly, that's probably the hardest part of an eating disorder is when no one else knows, um, you know, that burden is really hard to bear. Um, and which is why I think it's just so incredibly important to just open up to at least one person. Um, because when you do actually like voice what's going on, it, that's like the first step to kind of breaking the power that it has over you. Um, and so, um, so yeah, when I, when I told my mom, it was kind of a relief is like, okay, I don't have to figure this out on my own. Now I have help. And so from there, my parents kind of worked, um, to kind of get me set up with help back at Syracuse. So with a counselor and a nutritionist and some people through like the student life health, um, uh, organization there on campus. And then, um, yeah, and then it kind of became, sort of as that spring semester continued, it became pretty obvious that I needed to either pause school and get treatment or maybe transfer and then find some sort of treatment that I could do at home while still taking classes. So I, that's the option that I, that I went for. Cause I, I, I thought that if I paused college, I wouldn't go back and finish. So which is totally not true of my personality. <laughs> like I totally would have finished, but um, yeah. So I ended up deciding to transfer after that, after I finished the spring semester to transfer um, to a school close to home and then, and then work with an outpatient treatment facility. So. Well, did that work? You know, I mean, I feel like, <laughs> Yes and no, because like my journey, my, my recovery took nine years. So that conversation that I had, <sighs> sorry, 
it's okay. That conversation I had with my mom was that was 2001 and I struggled, you know, for another like 10 until I was 27. And, you know, it's like, man, if it had worked, maybe my struggle would have been shorter. Maybe it would have just been a few years. But I think that it took, I mean, I don't know why it took so long, but it was part of, it was a piece of the puzzle. So initially that outpatient treatment facility, I think, got me to a place where I was at a healthy weight. You know, and what's what's kind of, um, I guess, sad is that once you reach a healthy weight, um, you get discharged. Um, and so I think being that type A person, um, my weight was restored. You know, I wanted to do recovery right. Like I wanted to... to um, you wanted to win at recovery. Exactly. <laughs> I wish we, I, I wish did. I lived I wish I lived with you near you with you whatever and we could be sitting here face to face because this is really hard stuff to I yeah. mean we have literally just dissected the foundation of a, a really sad yet important part of your life and it's not a small thing. So for me to even ask, like, did that work? I mean, obviously I knew your journey had gone from there. And so I get it and I know it's emotional and I, I really appreciate you opening up and sharing today, all of this, because it really does help people who feel like there's no way out. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why I am like, I like to think of it as relentlessly honest because gosh, I, I, at that time I felt like there was no way out. Like I didn't, didn't know anyone who had struggled with an eating disorder and recovered. Like, you know, this is 2001, like nobody's sharing stories on the internet. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's not like, you don't have resources at your fingertips the way that you do now. Um, and so, yeah, I felt totally alone. Um, and I think the emotion is coming from just how long the struggle was and just how difficult that, how much of my life it took, I guess. I know, I know that feeling. I really do. Cause I've had my own struggles in different ways with different addictions and you know, yeah. the, the key isn't about like, why did it take so long? But the fact that you're here now in a different way in such a yeah. strong, beautiful light around you that you had to go through this. You yeah. wouldn't be able to help others and be the person you are today if you did not go through this journey. You would be less open. Something about yeah. you wouldn't, oh, totally. yeah, yeah. wouldn't have blossomed. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's like, so that period of my life, that, that recovery period, that nine to 10 years, um, yeah, that was a really difficult time, but it was so formative, like, and it, it's made, 
you know, it's so, it sounds so cliche, but it's made me who I am today. Like if I didn't have that part in my story, my story would be totally different. Well, and, and I think, you know, a big part of this is finally coming to believe that you are enough, that you are complete. All those mm-hmm. things that somehow you came to not believe when you were young and you were trying yeah. to fill yourself or, you know, anorexia and bulimia are two different eating disorders, but they go yeah. hand in hand. And it, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, maybe you could, we can talk a little bit about how, you know, after you got to a healthy weight, but the journey wasn't over, it wasn't that you sort of relapsed into anorexia, but the disorder continued in a different way, in a way where you were trying to sort of fill yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, that's exactly right. I mean, I, my weight was restored and then kind of what happened is that it's like everyone thought like I was better. Um, and so, but I really hadn't healed the relationship with myself. Like I hadn't come to a place where I accepted and believed that I was enough. Um, I was still, we it was like we just, just slapped a bandaid on it. And, um, and so I started to struggle with bulimia because what was happening is like, I felt like people were expecting me to eat. So I had to eat when people were watching um, because people were watching (laughs) and to make sure that I was eating um, because for so long I'd been so restrictive. And so then it just morphed into like, well, I'll eat this, but then I'll go purge it later and get rid of it later. And so it became this very, the bulimia was very secretive. It was just what I did sort of, after to maintain like this, like, oh, I'm better sort of facade. Um, and then as that just sort of became ingrained as a habit, then it morphed into intentionally binging and then intentionally purging. So it kind of went from a place where like, oh, I had to eat dinner so that everyone sees me eat dinner. Now I'm going to go get rid of the dinner to like, like actually like going to the grocery store and buying foods to binge on and then coming you know, home and binging and then purging. So, um, so yeah, it just, it just morphed and like changed and, and took root until really I felt like it was an addiction. It was this compulsive behavior that I felt like I had no control over. Like, it was like, I just like a switch flipped and it was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. No one, no no thought is going to stop me. No phone call, no text. Like no one's going to stop me from binge, from binging and purging and I just kind of had this yeah it it just became this compulsive addictive behavior well and it makes sense too because with anorexia people can see it's visual oh yeah she's really way too thin and Mm -hmm. she has peach fuzz on her face you know all the signs but with bulimia I know there are things that you can see maybe you being super tuned in to seeing this and other people can see, but to the average person, maybe they can't. And so you yeah. can hide it and hiding an addiction mm-hmm. is even more dangerous because you can mm-hmm. do it longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that's really sort of where the, I mean, I, at that point, you know, I wasn't in, 
I was sort of in and out of seeing different therapists, but nothing ever like really stuck. Like I just couldn't find a therapist that I worked well with. And, <clears throat> and, and then sometimes we couldn't afford therapy. Um, you know, and so all through this time, like I got married, my husband and I moved to Arizona, we moved across the country. Like there are lots of other things going on in my life during this time. Um, it was really when we moved across the country that it became to Arizona um, it became just really bad. And so it was like four or five years of, of the bulimia just being really pretty out of control. Did um, he know? He did. Yep, he did. You know, and honestly, like, God bless him. He tried everything. <laughs> he tried, you know, tough love. He tried just like, just kind of being available if I needed him he tried like accountability with me he tried like you know he just tried everything and I worked pretty hard to hide it from him and I think f at, at some point I think he finally just kind of gave up trying oh. to trying to help oh that's that sucks too yeah. because it feels like okay it's hopeless yeah so and he, that's he, that's totally how he felt yeah and you know he loved you. Like I who oh, knows? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows though? Yeah. Like had you had you not finally come out the other side, like how long can you yeah. can you be in a relationship where you know the Should person you're with is harming themselves? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Tough. I don't I don't know. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, it was so tough for him. Um I mean, and he he was there you know, through the whole thing, like, you know, we met when I was 19 and got married when I was 21. And, <clears throat> you know, he would, he would come to therapy appointments with me. And, um, yeah, I mean, he saw like, he saw every part of it. So, you know, we, I think about the word full and then feeling too full, like mm. maybe we can talk a lot, a little bit about, during recovery, you have to come to terms with how, how to be able to eat and keep the food in, you know, and like be okay with this feeling yeah. of full, yeah. however full that is. I will say like, yeah. you know, in high school, I experimented with both food restricting. I wouldn't, I was definitely not anorexic, but I was <laughs> trying to not eat and I remember doing that literally I'm not kidding for like two weeks and I was like oh this isn't gonna work but one of my friends on swim team was throwing up in the bathroom every day so I was like oh maybe I'll try that and yeah it wasn't something I ended up um, having a much much more robust relationship with an alcohol addiction than a food addiction mm. you know and I think this is all relevant mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, these are things that we're doing that have negative effects on us, but for some reason we can't stop doing them. Um, yeah. And so with, you know, this eating, like you, we need to eat food to live. Like you don't have to yeah. drink alcohol yeah. to live. There's different, right. it's a different way to break that one, but you have to be mm -hmm. able to learn how to eat food in a way mm -hmm. that not only can you like manage, but you can maybe actually find joy in. So yeah. how did you get there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, it's, it's that, that is like the crux of it really is like 
how do you get to that point where you restore your relationship with food so that it's something that you can enjoy um, and then that can be become what it's supposed to be, which is something that nourishes you, something that you use for celebration, something that, you know, it's part of part of our different cultures. It's like, it's, there's joy in it. Right. And, um, but how, yeah, how do you get there? If, um, if you've sort of seen it as the enemy for a really long time. Um, and I think that really sort of the, the turning point for me was, um, we had moved back from Arizona. Um, and I had found out that, um, that I was pregnant, um, which was kind of unexpected because with all the anorexia, bulimia, um, I'd had amenorrhea. I'd never had a normal cycle. Um, and, um, so finding out that I was pregnant was kind of a, a surprise. Um, and, um, <clears throat> when, when I found that out, I kind of, I had this, I had a moment, a pretty, um, pivotal moment where I had, um, been at work and I came home from work. Um, and, um, at the time I was a teacher, so I was home at like three or something starving, gosh, I want to eat dinner, but it's not dinner time yet. And then I think I just ended up binging, um, went into the bathroom to purge. And, you know, there was something that just made me pause, like, really, like, it was just this kind of internal voice that was, you know, the good internal voice that was like, really, Sarah, do you really want to keep doing this? Like, there's a, a baby inside you now. There's, there's a life in there. Um, and I can just remember thinking like, gosh, I really want the best for this little life that's inside me. Um, I, I don't want to harm it or hurt it. Um, I, I want it to develop and grow and, and be born healthy and whole. Um, and kind of came to this, um, this realization that if I wanted to, you know, nourish the baby and honor the baby's life. And, um, then I first had to, to nourish my own body and honor my own body. And, you know, if I truly wanted to love, um, this life that was inside me, I had to love myself first. Um, and so I walked out of the bathroom that day without purging and kind of had to sit with all of that food that I'd just eaten. Um, you know, and I think my first thought was like, well, I just won't eat tomorrow, you know, like some sort of restrictive response to, to having eaten that much. And then, um, I think, you know, maybe it was a few days later around that same time, I just kind of made this, this rather weird bargain with myself, which was like, okay, Sarah, for, for nine months, the nine months that you're going to be pregnant with this baby, you are not allowed to purge. Like you just can't, it's just, that's the rule. Um, and you can't restrict, but if you have the baby and like at the end of that, you want to try and lose the baby weight and you feel like the best way to lose the baby weight is to go back to restricting and purging, then that, then you can do that. And I kind of felt like, gosh, if I can make it, you know, they say like a habit is 21 days. Like if I can make it a month, 
and I haven't purged, which would have been like probably the longest I'd ever gone without purging. Like if I can make it a month, then maybe that'll develop a new habit and then maybe I'll make it two months and then maybe I'll make it three months and then maybe at the end of nine months, like I just won't want to do it anymore was kind of like the hope that I had. Um, and so, um, so yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of what happened is like, I just, I made this bargain with myself. And then I think because I was pregnant, there was sort of like this permission that I gave myself to gain weight. Like this is just part of pregnancy. This is part of the process. And so like, I'm going to gain weight anyway, because I'm pregnant. So if I'm gaining weight by sitting with the food that I'm eating, um, then that somehow made it okay in my mind. Um, so in some ways I feel like the pregnancy with my daughter kind of saved my life. Um, because it just, it flipped everything upside down for me to the point where I, you know, I realized like it wasn't about me, but at the same time it was all about me and figuring out like what I had to do to, to love myself and, and, and really understand what that meant. That is so powerful. You know, there's one moment in here that I think is worth just dissecting a little bit, which is the pause. Mm, like, yeah. we all could benefit from pausing more um, mm -hmm. at important moments. We may not even realize they're important. So maybe just pause yeah. more in general. And later you'll be like, yeah. that was really important yeah. that I paused. Yeah. <laughs> because it, yeah. it's like you said, habit, you know, you're immediately, your body's moving towards doing a certain act, but you paused. Yeah. Like, what does the pause do for us in our yeah. lives? Oh, gosh, I think it's it's so important. Um, and I think that when you're struggling with something that that's an, a compulsive behavior, something that's an addiction, there often is no pause. It's just behavior, you know, thought, behavior, thought, behavior, thought, behavior, thought, behavior. You know, it's like the negative, destructive thinking that then leads to the negative, destructive behavior. Um, and there's no space between those two things for the part of your brain <laughs> that wants to protect you and like keep you safe and help you do the right thing. There's like no space for that voice to come through. Um, and so I think that pause was just giving the part of me that loved me and wanted me to succeed and have the best life. It gave that part of me a chance to speak um, because for so long that the internal negative voice was just so dominant and so loud that whatever positive things were going on in my mind, they just couldn't get through um, because um, my thinking was just so negative. And so I think that pause is, yeah, it's, it's the key to, to giving voice to that, that, that positive side of you. Yes. Cause the negative is always quick to jump in. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I think about like your brain and <laughs> I think about your brain, Sarah, and how, 
how so much of it and so much time and energy was wrapped around these consumed thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And when you free yourself of that, you know, job, which was thinking all the time about these negative things or restricting food or whatever, you know, the, the cyclical negative thoughts, how much freedom your brain would enjoy going forward. It, it reminds me of like, did you ever watch Seinfeld much? A little bit here and there. Well, my husband has the box set. So. Oh my God. It's <laughs> like, there's an episode where George, one of the characters was like, I think he was like not having sex or something for a period of time. And, <laughs> and then he became a genius and they were like, what's going on with him? And he's like, well, think about your head. Your brain is like a, a head of lettuce. And, it used to be that just one leaf was working <laughs> because the rest of it was consumed about thinking about sex all the time. And, you know, finally, like you have your entire brain is now free to function, free from these negative thoughts. Like, I don't know, I just that yeah. crossed my mind of like, wow, the rewiring and the openness and the opportunity then to move forward and expand your life is just so amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think like, I've always been like a creative person, but I just was never creative, like during that period of time, like, just was so preoccupied. And, and so, like, you know, now I have opportunity, like ideas all the time, you know, my brain is just like filled with with ideas and things that I want to do and um, creative projects. And, um, and yeah, and the, you know, there, there are some things I honestly, my husband has memories that I don't recall. Like, I just don't, he's like, don't you remember when we did that thing in Arizona? And, you know, I have no recollection. It's like, nope, I don't remember being there, you know? So that's the weird, that's like the sad part is like, there's times where I was so checked out of my own life that I don't remember what I physically did, you know, places that I went and people that I saw like that's the part where it's like man it would be nice to have some of those years back you know it is it is interesting too like and then moving into the life you're in now you have three children you know your mm. your daughter is uh nine and a half am I right yeah yep nine and a half yeah and then your son is seven seven yep and then my youngest is four so wow. and are you done <laughs> yes Yes. I don't know. I mean, okay, cool. Yep. But even if you have another one, awesome. But like yeah. three is really amazing. And um, think about if you were still trying to hold on to this other lifestyle, like yeah. could you possibly imagine, you know, spending all your time and energy thinking about I this can't. when I honestly can't No, like, how could you it just? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. No, it would just, it would be so, pretty impossible, I think. Yeah. Well, so then I was thinking about how you had to come out of this like so strong, right? But it's not mm -hmm. right away. I mean, it takes time to build your yeah. strength back and your confidence. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, when your son was born, Jack, he was born yeah. with a congenital uh, birth defect, right? Yeah. And I read your story yeah. and it's absolutely amazing. Um, uh -huh. And maybe you can share a little bit of it, the story. And yeah. my point in bringing it up is that you've got to have 
all of your tools ready to use when things like this hit so that you can handle them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and even then, like, there's not much that can prepare you for like your child, there being something wrong with your child, like physically. Um, So Jack was born um, with something called a giant melanocytic nevus, which is basically what happens is in utero when the fetus is developing um, and the spinal cord is like sending out the signals for like the creation of all the organs and sending out signals for like the pigmentation of the skin. And for whatever reason, like when those signals went out in his body, um, the melanin, the, the signals got jumbled up and the melanin cells like basically like collected. Um, and so he has the, had this very large, circle on his back which is about 10 centimeters by 14 centimeters so it took like on an eight pound baby that's about 80 percent of the skin on the back um it's a fairly large circle of just this collection of melanin cells so it's like when he was first born it was very blackish in color and like brown and kind of reddish like um and very bumpy so it's like tumorish looking um And it's basically um, the risk, there's two risks. There can be um, a risk that the melanin cells are somehow in the spinal cord. Um, In that instance, the condition is fatal. So most most babies won't live past a year. Um, If it's more, if it's just in the skin, then, um, then it's, the risk is melanoma. So, um, so typically parents will opt to have the, the nevus removed. I mean, there are some families that opt not to have it removed. Um, and then you just have to be, then, then it's a cancer risk management. So it's like you get biopsied every, um, few months and, you know, everything has to be covered. And so you're always just kind of like managing the cancer risk. But if, we opted for the removal so that hopefully we wouldn't have to like then manage this cancer risk for the rest of his life. Um, so, um, and this is something that's not picked up up on ultrasound. Um, so when he was born, you know, we were like, yay, this, here comes our son, you know, this, he's totally healthy. He's going to be born healthy. And then he came out and they were like, Oh, he's not okay. We don't know what this is. This is really weird. Um, And so he had an MRI to just make sure there wasn't melanin um, cells in his spinal cord. And then, um, and then he had surgery at, um, let's see, five months old to insert tissue expanders. So those balloons kind of went under his skin on his back. And then over the course of three months, we, filled the balloons with um, saline solution to expand his skin. And then at eight months, he had surgery to kind of excise the nevus and then cover, like graft his his back back together. So um, yes, it's all plastic. It's plastic surgery. Um, Wait, what and does that mean, plastic surgery? Yeah, he had a plastic surgeon. <laughs> oh, surgeon I'm sorry. Like surgeon. I was, yeah. I don't know what I was thinking in my yeah, head. Like, I'm like, wait, they used plastic. Wait, <laughs> yeah, like 
Like this, I mean, he, Got our it. plastic Got surgeon it. did like boobs and noses, but he yeah. also did like <laughs> totally. left palettes and, and back. Yeah. So, yes. And we, uh, we just often think of plastic surgery in the aesthetic world. Oh yeah. 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 Totally. totally. I there, mean, this is serious. And I saw this yeah. photo that you posted where you must've had the, the tissue expanders in yeah. and yes. it was just, you know, it was it's, like love. Was, yeah. yeah. He was like, so he was, you know, a baby, a growing, developing baby who, you know, you want them to reach their normal milestones, like crawling and rolling and all those things. But he has these giant, like, expanders in his back. And then those connect to a port. And then we use a, we used a syringe to, um, you know, um, stick the needle of the syringe in the port and then inject the saline every daily. So that's what we were doing daily for three months. But he, you know, the, the port, the tube for the port comes out an open wound in the side of his body. Um, you know, it like heals up a little bit around the tube, but you've got this kind of opening that, um, and so anytime he poops, Anytime there's a blowout, you know, this is a five month old baby. So oh, like, gosh, yes. Anytime anything happens regarding the diaper and the pooping, you're like, oh my God, is it going to get in the port? Is it going to get infected? Like, you know, and like infection, and, you know, is like the number one like thing that you're thinking about is like, don't let him get in, an infection. Um, and his first two surgeries um, were pretty. Um, went were very straightforward. They were successful, pretty standard. I mean, it's still tough to see your kid go under anesthesia, like that's and like recover from surgery because it's very clear that they're in pain and they can't articulate, you know, and they're waking up from anesthesia and they can't, they have no idea what's going on. And so that all was like really emotional and difficult. Um, but the hardest part was after his second surgery, it was like we were like, yay, we're done. Um, and then five weeks post-op, he ended up with um, a staph infection, MRSA staph infection. And we were in the hospital for five days. We were um, admitted to our local emergency room in the middle of the night. And then they immediately sent us up to the children's hospital. Um, and we were there for five days while they got the infection under control and um, and that was, that was definitely scarier than the surgeries themselves because the surgeries were planned. You know, we had a scheduled time where we were going to be in, you know, scheduled time for anesthesia. But when you're rushed to the hospital in the middle of the night with a sick kid who has an infection and then they tell you it's MRSA, then, you know, it's like pretty, pretty scary. So is he okay now? Yeah, he's totally okay. Um, he sees the dermatologist every year. We go in and they um, take a look at his back and his scar. He's got a huge scar that goes from one armpit all the way across his back to the other armpit. Um, but he thinks it's kind of cool. Um, and so does his brother. His little brother thinks it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, and so they they monitor the, the his back for just in case like they didn't get a positive margin and there's still some skin cells in there that are abnormal, but they're pretty sure they got everything. Um, cause it's been seven years. Um, 
and and then he has a couple what they call satellite nevus which are smaller to to anyone else they would just look like just a mole or a freckle but um they're they're moles that that he was born with so typically you don't develop like moles or freckles until you've been exposed to the sun um and so they monitor the ones that he he was born with just to uh, just to keep an eye on those because a couple of them are larger than like a typical freckle or mole so they keep an eye on those too you've been through a lot in your life and you are young (laughs) you're not even 40 yet not yet you're in your prime (laughs) sister Um, yeah i know you know we have spent a lot of time talking about who sarah was and yeah how Sarah came through the dark places. I mean, who would you say you are today? What's your mission? What do you want this world to remember you by? Yeah, I mean, today I feel just really confident in who I am, um, which is a really fun place to be. Um, and I would say that that really my my mission is to to help other women um, gain confidence and find the inner strength that is there, but it's maybe hidden. And then I really love connecting people. Um, I, I just really love being in relationship with people and then connecting, um, you know, connecting people who I think would, would enjoy um, being friends. So, um, so I really feel like, you know, that's kind of, kind of my mission. Well, and you're doing that in a few ways. First of all, you have Rise Run Retreat, which is one of the premier women's running retreats and camps in the country. Mm -hmm. So uh, will you just share a little bit about that? And if you have any coming up or that are open for registration? Yeah. So I um, started Rise Run Retreat um, back in 2015. So we're in our fourth year, headed into our fifth year, which is really exciting. Um, And I really started it because, um, you know, all through these journeys, whether it was, you know, sort of my recovery from an eating disorder or even um, during that difficult time with Jack, um, running was the way that I sort of sorted things out. Um, It was the way that I taught myself to be my biggest cheerleader. So that's kind of where, you know, when we were talking about that, that pause moment where you give that inner voice, that positive inner voice, a chance to come through. I feel like running is that pause for me. Um, You know, I get out, lace up my shoes. Um, and the way that I talk to myself on the run um, is is positive. I'm, you know, it's all this like, yeah, you can do this, Sarah. Make it up that hill. You know, you got this. Like, that's kind of where running is where I learned to talk to myself in a really positive way. Um, and so, um, you know, I've had some really amazing and transformative experiences that have come about through running. I've also met some amazing women who I'm really close friends with. And so I felt like just really wanted to create something um, around running that brought women together um, that um, really empowered women um, to, to gain confidence and find strength within themselves, but then also like inspiration from each other because, you know, I'm not the only person with a story like this, like, and you don't have to be an elite runner or a professional or um, someone famous to share your story. And I think when we all come together um, in like these small sort of retreat settings, we realize like, gosh, we can take inspiration 
from anyone. Um, and so, so yeah, so I started Rise Run Retreat. We have a spring retreat um, in Vermont in May. Um, and then in the fall, we do a running camp here in New Hampshire um, on one of our biggest lakes here. So right on the shore of the lake. And um, um, both the events are really fun. Unfortunately, we are for 2019, we're all wrapped up. We um, just wrapped up our um, running camp a few weeks ago. So, um, but we'll be announcing our uh, 2020 dates in November. So, um, yeah, I totally want to come. You totally should come. <laughs> you totally and, should. Um, come. I want to come. And I also was thinking about this, uh, point you just made about how running helped you learn how to talk to yourself in a positive way. And it, a lot of people listening suffer from that spiral of negative thoughts. And, and I just want to, make a point that you've basically been saying all along that you can turn that around and that it does take practice and it's a habit. You've just mm-hmm. got to reframe and work on a new habit and yeah. running can be a tool for many people and not if you use it negatively though, you can't be like, I suck at running while you're out running. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you gotta, you know, yeah. but it's, it's a way to cue yourself into a new place and into a new headspace. And I love that. And I love that that was part of your journey too, which we didn't even talk about, but actually I wanted to mention one thing too, is that, you know, part of when you move from one area of your life to the next and you're trying to improve your life and get out of a negative space, you have to find new things. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, change is hard for a lot of people. And I was thinking about you and how even now in your athletic life, you've been making these transitions and moving out of your comfort zone. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you've written this amazing journal which is available in ebook right now, right? We're going to talk about it in one second. But yeah. is it available in ebook? Yeah, the ebook should be available in the next few weeks, and then there'll be a print version um, coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Can I just read one little paragraph, and then we'll come back to talking about it here? Because I want to talk okay. about yeah. this next thing for yeah. you. So here you are, you're a runner. You're a very good runner. You know, you've you've run marathons. It's part of your identity. And yet as you're, as you're going through your life, you're still open to trying new things. One of which is snowshoeing and one of it, which just might be skate skiing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So in one of the final chapters, you say, my left leg slid slightly outward. I caught it just before it threw me off balance. Just when I'd achieved a stable stance, my right leg slid forward, threatening to send me into a split, but this was not ballet class. For the first time in my life, I was on skate skis. In my mind's eye, I pictured myself gliding along, unearthing a long hidden talent to somehow master Nordic skiing on my very first attempt. Instead, I'd been standing a a stone's throw from the warming hut for the last five minutes, just trying to bring my skis together. And what I love about this is that, well, first of all, I picked up skate skiing a few years ago and it was the exact same experience. (laughs) Um, But you had this idea that you've just achieved stability, like you've just gotten there, you've just balanced in whatever it is in your life, and then the other leg goes out. And so it's a constant sort of 
ballet, like you mentioned, trying to get yourself back in balance. But if you never give yourself that opportunity to become unbalanced, your life can't really grow. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like this whole, what you're doing here for women, this is so embodied by that one little funny story and experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think like that edge of, I mean, it's basically just pushing yourself to the edge of your comfort zone and um, being brave enough to take a risk and being okay with failing, you know, taking a risk and being okay with failing and seeing that whatever happens with that failure, that's actually the gift, that lesson, that's the whole point. Um, which is kind of funny when you think about how this conversation started about me being like, as a kid, like paralyzed by messing up. <laughs> it's actually a really great way to make it, to bring it full circle. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah. So let's talk about your journal because yeah. this is powerful stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, kind of, as we talked about, there are, a lot of resources available now um, for people who are struggling with eating disorders or even just struggling with body image. And, you know, I, I wanted to take everything that I sort of learned the hard way, I guess, and kind of struggled through um, in my recovery and create something that was going to help people in a really tangible way. Um, and not just people who um, have maybe a clinical clinically diagnosed eating disorder, I really wanted to provide a resource for people who maybe that inner voice is just tips more towards the negative, especially when it comes to things like the way we talk to ourselves about our body and the way that we, you know, think and what we believe about ourselves um, when it comes to body image. And so I really wanted to create like sort of a roadmap for women to actually work through that, that negative internal narrative and do the mental work to shift the voice to a stronger positive voice and kind of have an understanding of how to handle the negative thinking and, and then sort of create new space for the positive thinking. And so that's really what the journal um, is all about is, is changing the way that you think about yourself. Well, I think pretty much every woman would benefit, and man, it doesn't matter, it's genderless, <laughs> would benefit yeah. from uh, picking up a copy. So I definitely will have a link in the show notes as well. And we'll also link yeah. to your retreats, even though they haven't been announced, but you better let me know first so I can get in. I will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if people are interested, um, it's riserunretreat.com. Um, yeah, for the retreat. And then for more information on the book, you could just go to my website, um, sarahcanny.com backslash book. So, Sarah, you are so awesome. I just kind of want to keep uh, talking, but we are way <laughs> long. It's so cool. Um, so let's wrap it up with the final nugget, okay. the final oh, okay. advice. Um, if you could leave our listeners with one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Oh, it's funny. Cause I was thinking about this last week on my run and had like this great little, like 
nugget and I never wrote it down. So, <laughs> but I'll try to paraphrase what, what, um, what I, the gist of what I was thinking, which is like just this idea of being, um, relentless for yourself. Um, and, um, I think that if you are, um, yeah, relentless in being compassionate for yourself and figuring out what it means to, to love yourself, um, figuring out what it means to, um, to be happy, um, and fulfilled in this life, um, if you're relentless for yourself, then you will have the ability to pour out into other people, um, love other people, um, honor and, and serve other people and make the world a better place. Perfectly said and perfectly paraphrased. You, (laughs) you are truly a gift and I know it's been quite a journey and this journey on this earth does not end. So I, I'm so grateful that you have fought your way through the tough stuff and you are at a phase in your life where you are giving back in a big way. So thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, Thanks, Nicole. This has been just a huge pleasure. All right. Wow. That was a good one, huh? That was an awesome conversation. Sarah Canny is like all of your new best friends. Um, You got to check out her retreats you got to check out her book. You got to check out her blog. You got to follow her on all the places to follow. Um, She's just spreading so much positivity. And you know, I can definitely get behind that. It was interesting. Um, You know, the episode was going pretty long. And yet I still, there were other things I wanted to talk to her about. But at the end, I just, I really wanted to make sure that I hit on how she handled giving birth to her son, Jack, with the birth defect and and how that changed her. And it just, it felt important. And so I'm glad we went there because all of this, everything we talk about circles all the way back around to her message, which is about being relentless for yourself, relentlessly honest, compassionate, um, loving, you know, real with yourself. So today I encourage you to go out there and be relentless yourselves. Um, on a side note, if you're here till the very end, which you should be, why not all the way through the closing music? (laughs) You stuck with me this long definitely get over to skirtsports.com Use the code RUN20 and relentlessly buy yourself something awesome for your fall and winter training because you freaking deserve it. Um, We are all about making products that help women find happiness, that help women feel great in their bodies, and that fit women's bodies how they should. So use the code RUN20 for 20% off. It may not work when we are doing certain super promotions like pop-up sales or some Black Friday type stuff, but give it a whirl and uh, reach out to me if you have any questions about anything skirt sports related. And on a final note, I'm going to do another big uh, reviews push here at some point soon. (laughs) 
If you uh, have a chance, please head over to iTunes and write a review about the podcast. Share it with a friend. Um, I want to get the word out more about what I'm doing here. I have some incredible people who are on the hook to be interviewed soon. I actually just ran into Claire Gallagher in the grocery store today. She's going on a road trip to help save the planet. Um, We are definitely going to get her back on the books too. Uh, If you don't know Claire, she's this year's uh, Western States 100 winner. She is such a rock star, and I love her. And we are all just surrounded by incredible people everywhere we look. So on that note, everybody, that's it for now. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.